Thank you very much. Well, <clears throat> let me do a quick review and then a preview. This is one of those topics. Um, if you're new to Eagle Bible Church, we preach through books of the Bible. And we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, sometimes phrase by phrase. And so uh, today is not because I woke up and said, hey, I want to teach on this. Um, we teach on this because it falls next in line in the book of Acts. You stick with me and you'll see what we're talking about and why some a little bit apprehensive. But it'll be okay because it's God's word. It needs to be preached and we will learn from it. We're going through a series called Acts, the world's greatest construction project, that Jesus began a good work. He's still doing a good work. And one day he's going to come back and complete that work. And he does it by the power of the Spirit through God's chosen people. And we've seen throughout these weeks, Acts chapter 1 through 4, here's kind of a summary. Jesus went up in chapter 1. Uh, the Spirit comes down in chapter 2. The apostles go out in chapter 3. And because they go out and they start to share the good news, they are persecuted. And so that is a very brief summary of what's happened in Acts thus far. I was just reading this week in a leadership book, and they talked about the Babel community of Genesis 11 versus the Pentecost community, and I thought it was a great summary that in Genesis 11, the Babel community was a small city, uh, but in the Pentecost community, it's a large kingdom. In the Babel community, they built a house of a few people, but here the house is being built of many people. It was marked by walls. There, there are no walls in the Pentecost community. It was intentionally resisted diversity. This is where they tried to come together. Here we intentionally pursue diversity. It avoided hospitality. We practice hospitality. The Babel community was a gathered homogenous people. We are a gathered heterogeneous people. They wanted to make their name great. We want to make Jesus' name great. God came down and confused their language. And here God comes down and he gives them uh, the tongues of fire. God judged their sin. Here in the Pentecost community, God forgave their sin. There he confused languages. Here it was unified under the gospel that even other nations were hearing, but it was all about the gospel message. Nice little comparison there of the two communities. We're part of the Pentecost community. And so today, after I pray, we're going to talk on the next chapter, Acts, the end of chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11. Father, it is to your glory that I preach your word. It is to your glory that we come together, a people unified, a people saved, a people of your own possession. I pray now as we look at Acts 4.32 through 5.11, uh, might your Holy Spirit guide us, illumine our minds to the scriptures that we may behold the wonderful truths that are in your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you get older, I can say that now. As you get older, I'm wearing a suit jacket too, so it just sounds official. As you get older and wiser, you learn that there are certain things you just don't talk about over the office dinner party. I mean, there's certain things that shouldn't be discussed on a, on a first date or when you're trying to get to know someone for marriage. I did a little research, and according to some recent polls, here are the top seven things you do not discuss at work. Number one, religion. Number two, politics. Number three, sex. Number four, five, Six and seven are all personal, personal health problems, personal family problems, personal career goals, and last but not least, personal finances. Uh, if you were to go out to dinner, say you're dating or courting somebody for the opposite sex, you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about past relationships, you don't talk about sex, unhappiness, or the job, or salary, the classic. We don't talk about religion, we don't talk about politics, and we don't talk about money. And guess what we're talking about today? Money. Money is taboo to talk about. The Bible discusses all of it and more. And we have never been shied away from talking about money and or sex. We just use the scriptures to teach on those things. And so we walk through the Song of Solomon together. And today we're going to talk about money. And along with money is deception. It seems like money and deception go hand in hand. It's from... Uh, Trading, insider trading to capital campaigns from politicians, things tied to riches, it seems to follow that there's deception. This isn't always the case, 
Uh, but money issues can plague the society. They can plague a church. Pastors have been let go for the past in their moral failures, and they're usually tied to money and or immorality. And so we need not be surprised that Satan would like to twist the idea of, of what does it mean to be a good steward of money. He is a liar. He's the father of lies. He's been doing this from the beginning. We shouldn't be surprised about this, but we need to talk about it. And if you're new to Eagle Bible Church, I reiterate, I didn't wake up this morning and say, I'm just going to talk on money. If you're new here and you've only been coming a couple of weeks, we do this as we go through the scriptures systematically expositing the text. And so today we're going to talk on money. Jesus had a few things to say about money. In Matthew, 5, in Matthew 6, 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. For you either hate the one or love the other. Listen to the language. This is your Savior, my Savior speaking. He will be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or God and money. And so we must be biblically wise when it comes to the issue of money. The subject of today's topic is money. There's $1,000 in here, or maybe there isn't. But it's about money. There's my visual aid, the wallet. And so today we need to know the positive and negatives of money in the local church. Or another way to say it is the overview. We need to know generosity of the church and the purity of the church. In the first part, we're going to see reasons for generosity. They come straight from the text. In the second part, we're going to see reasons against greed. Last week, I looked at persecuted persecution outside the church, inside to the church today. We're going to see judgment. And we begin in Acts 4.32 with a summary. In, in chapter 1, verse 12 and 14, we looked at an obedient, praying community of men and women. In 2.42-37, we saw a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, and a witnessing church. And today, we're going to see in this next summary, 4.32-37, a unified, generous church. Let me read the entire paragraph and then we'll break it down. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said, any, said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And a great power, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we're going to look at the first uh, four verses there, and then we'll look at the last two. The first four verses there, we're going to see some principles on generosity. In verse 32, you're going to see first and foremost that generosity takes unity. Now, the full number of those who were believed were of, in the key phrase, one heart and soul. There is the believer's unity, and it says, and no one, now watch what it says here. In, in, read the Bible slowly. This is where people are get way off on we should be communist. And no one said, notice what it did. It didn't say no one had. It said no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. It would be like me saying to you today, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart, my house is yours. If you ever need a place to stay, I will check with HQ, right? And you can come over anytime. I mean it. Do we mean that? We mean that. But we're paying the rent on it, right? I mean, we're, we're the one, it's, it's our house, but it's what, that's what they're saying. They said they had any of these things, that none of these things belonged to them. So my house is yours. My truck is yours. You can drive my Honda Ridgeline anytime you want. And if you should ding the other side, maybe we'll then get her fixed. <laughs> right? My truck is yours. That's the idea here. They held everything in common. I read to you a note. The remark is not a reflection of political philosophy. This is not communism. 
but of the extent of their spontaneous commitment to one another. Such a response does not have a function of a command, but is reflective of an attitude that Luke commends as evidence of their identification with one another. There was a unified body of believers. What's mine is yours, and I won't go so far to say is what yours is mine. What's mine is yours. That's the attitude they're looking at in verse 32. And it was an attitude around a purpose Verse 33, and there was great power. The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, to the gospel, to the good news. And great grace was upon them all. I love the combination of great grace and great power because often we separate those two, but the Bible puts them right together. That generosity furthers the gospel testimony. Generosity furthers the gospel testimony that we can send people to Papua New Guinea, that we can support people who are in other countries doing gospel work because of you who give your money. We can actually have people on staff full time. So I thank you, absolutely thank you for your generosity. Generosity furthers uh, the gospel message. That's verse 33. And, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them proceeds that were sold. More on that in a minute, but it doesn't mean they gave everything, and you're not going to hear an appeal for me at the end of this service to go get the title deed to your cars and your home and bring them. Ladies, if you've got any jewelry, just leave, you know, we'll put a bigger hole in the offering box tonight, just tonight, because after it's morning. Wow. Just leave it there for us. And that's not what we're getting at. But it shows that generosity is how we love practically. That's how we love practically. It's love with skin on it. Or as you've heard it before, put your money where your mouth is. If I say that my house is yours and you come to me and say, can I stay there for the night and and I don't live it out, then I'm not practically living out this idea of love and generosity within a community of believers. And so you have the believer's unity, you have the gospel testimony, you have church's generosity to one another. They took care of their own. And in verse 35, here is a key. And they laid it, they laid the proceeds from what they had sold at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This, my friends, was the first benevolence committee, right? They brought the money to the apostles and the apostles distributed as those who had need. By the way, we have a benevolence committee. I want to take this as an opportunity to let you know, um, I'm taking responsibility for this, but... some of you are new and many of you don't know that we don't, we even have a benevolence committee for you. And so I've not done a good job of letting you know all of the good things that we have at Eagle Bible Church. And so side note, sermon within a sermon, I'm going to take the weeklies, the weekly email in November and explain to you all the importance of being involved, connected to, generous for, and everything we have for you here at this church. More on that in November. So if you aren't signed up for the weekly email, sign up. But here it is, is, they gave their money to the apostles who distributed it to anyone as need. And so generosity trusts authority. I'm going to get into this as we go on and we talk about money because people seem to, when you get to, to the issue of money, um, everybody becomes a just like, like thoroughly educated in everything on theology. Well, well, don't talk to me about money because here... Here's where I think I should give my money. The Bible tells you where to give your money, and it's primarily to the local church. More on that in just a minute. But just in some generosity, it takes unity. And the more unified you are, the more invested you will be. The more people believe in the theology and philosophy and mission of Eagle Bible Church, the more they will give to that mission. And it furthers that mission. That's the purpose for it. It's not to make this wallet thicker, right? It's not to pad my bank account. It's to get the gospel out. And it's how we take care of one another. That if you have a need, and I'm very serious about this, and you have a financial need, you come to us because we want to help you. I'm not saying we can cover all the financial need, but we can help. And it's an element of trust. Do you trust 
what the elders do with your money. And then the last two verses you see, there is an example. If those are some principles on generosity, you see an example of it. Thus Joseph, notice the connection in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Here's a man who was um, generous and gracious with his words. His, he had gracious words. That's son of encouragement. He was one who could give encouragement. What did he do? Now watch this. Read the Bible real slowly. He sold a field. He sold a field. He didn't sell all his fields. He didn't sell every possession that he had. Notice what it said. He sold a field. If you were to go check that in the original, that's what it says. It's an anarthrous noun, and it just means there's not particular. It means it's a field. It didn't say, it did, they didn't give it. It said all fields or three fields. It sold a field. And so we can't read into the Bible those who want us to be communists. You've got to go sell everything. No, he sold. He apparently was a wealthy man who had multiple fields. He takes a field. He sells it. And it belonged to him. So the Bible is not against possession of materials. It belonged to him. And that's a good thing. And so he sold it and he brought the money and he laid it. Here's the leader of the early church trusting the elders to distribute that to anyone who has need. And so we see the example in Barnabas that you see his gracious words and his generous works. Here's an example. And so what you're going to see is right after this, you see an example of generosity. You're now going to see, and this is the sticky text that some pastors would just say, yeah, there's a story about Ananias and Sapphira. They did wrong and God dealt with it. And let's just go on to happier parts of the book. Not today. Look at verse one of chapter five. But in contrast, here is the purity of the church, verses five, one, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And watch this, gentlemen. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And so in the purity of the church, you're going to see a couple. You're going to see in 1 through 6, Ananias. In 7 through 11, you're going to see Sapphira. Notice 2. Make the connection between chapter or verse 1 of chapter 5. Sold a piece of property to uh, 437. Sold a field. Key issue here. Nobody's saying you have to give all your things to the church. It's A. He sold a piece of property. And the fact that his wife knows it is not a bad thing, but it's foreshadowing of verses 7 through 11. And the fact that he, he didn't give all of it's not the issue. But look at the phrase that is used. He kept back for himself. What this means is to put aside for oneself to keep back in secret in a dishonest way. It is an uncommon word. It's used in the Septuagint. If you remember the story in Joshua 7, the story of Achan, who received a sentence of death for holding back some of the spoils from Jericho. And so here's the issue. It is not about, let's say I wanted to sell my truck and give all the proceeds to the church. That's okay. I have the right to keep that truck or sell that truck and all the proceeds. I could keep it all for myself or I could give it all to the church. The deception comes, and you'll see this in clear light when we look at Sapphira, is if I said, hey, church, my truck cost 10 grand. I want to give all the proceeds to you. And then I sell it, and for some reason, you know, I got 12 grand for it. 
I mean, it's a nice truck. It's got a dent in the front right. I mean, you can't get that. You can't buy that. But I didn't give you all the proceeds. But I said I was going to give you all the proceeds. What happens? Two thousand dollars. I got to take my wife on vacation. See, there's there's just some sneakiness there that's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. And one commentator has said they were probably picked out because they were probably early church leaders. And so the first thing you're going to learn about greed and this idea of keeping back some for yourself, you, I could keep it all for myself. You just don't make promises and then not complete your promises. And so greed is sneaky. It's deceptive. It's secret and dishonest. Not a, it's not a good thing. And notice Peter, using discernment, says, Satan has filled your heart. Greed is satanic. Now, I don't believe that uh, Ananias is an unbeliever. I believe he's a full believer. I believe he's in the spirit, but I believe he's living according to the flesh. This is the only time this phrase is used in scripture, and it's not the same phrase. If you're trying to compare him to Judas, there are different phrases of Ananias. It is Satan filled his heart. That's the same idea as the Holy Spirit filling us or controlling us. And here in with Judas, it is Satan entered, filled, entered. Two different words. So you can't equate Ananias and Judas. It's a different word. And I think we assume he's a believer. He's a leader in the early church. He's not a child of wrath, but he's acting according to the flesh. And he's following the course of this world. That he becomes greedy. He tells his wife about it, and he makes a decision. Not a decision led by the power of the Spirit, a decision led by the power of Satan. It makes me read um, 1 Peter 5 with new eyes. Our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and he won't always come and jump on you and eat you with his jaws. He'll just tweak your thinking in your areas of money. In verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It was yours. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have kept all the proceeds. Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Greed is soul revealing. Greed is soul revealing. It reveals where your heart is. If you show me your wallet, checkbook, Quicken records, and you show me your calendar, I'll show you tangibly, not completely, not with, I'm not saying it's a one-to-one correlation. I'm just saying, generally speaking, you show me your wallet, your checkbook, your Quicken, and you show me your calendar, I'll show you if you love Jesus. I, I really, really love the Broncos. When, when, do you read anything about the Broncos? Nope. Do you ever watch the Broncos? Occasionally. I live in Colorado. Do you keep up with the Broncos? Nope. Do you give to the Broncos? Let's say they needed a fund. Do you give to the Broncos fund? Nope. Then how can you say you love the Broncos? Do you, you know, what do you love? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? It's soul revealing. Greed is soul revealing. Now, I'm not saying what I'm, the illustration I'm getting ready to use, don't read into it, not against golf, but it's a great illustration I use in my own life about money and where money can take our hearts. When I first moved here, I lived a mile from a golf course. I like to play golf. I thought to myself, hey, why not get the shoulder season pass? So in, uh, you know, in April and May, I can play all the golf I want. And come September, October, November, I can play all the golf I want. It's a good deal. But here's what I did. I bought the pass. And then I thought to myself, if I play so many times, this will be a good deal. Guess what I started to do? Guess what thinking was now going through my mind? Every Monday, I needed to be out there. Because my heart, as Jesus said correctly, goes where my money is. And so I'm sitting there thinking I would call my buddy up. Hey, let's go play. I mean, I got to play because I paid for it. 
You see where what what can what money can do? I'm not saying that it, what I did there was greedy. I'm just it was a very telling picture. I remember telling my wife, I I got to go play golf. I've paid for this. And where 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 your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I sent my money to the local golf course. And so my heart went there. That's all that's going on here. It's revealing his heart. But catch this. He didn't have to sell it. He didn't have to give it. He chose to do it, but he did it deceptively under the power of Satan, full of deception. Now watch this. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours. Now, I could do another sermon right here on the length of church services, but I won't. You are laughing because you're thinking, Bud, you started at 1030. You got about 15 minutes, according to the tradition of Eagle Bible Church. But after about an interval of three hours. So today, (laughs) I'm just going to go word by word for the next paragraph because I want to live to this out. So if you got afternoon plans, you just text. I'll give you about two minutes to text. I'm just kidding. But it's interesting. After an interval of three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. So here's Ananias. He lies. Notice the attribute of God given to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied uh, to men, but to God, God the Holy Spirit. She didn't know that. And Peter said to her, and here's why I think both of them were in collusion. Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such. She said, yes, for so much. So he had talked prior to this, and he had said, honey, this is what we sold it for, but this is what we're going to bring to them, and this is what we're going to tell them. So he, he worked with his wife on uh, lying to the church. This is a side note. Sermon within a sermon. Gentlemen, take the leadership of your families seriously. This is not a threat. This is not across the board. People are responsible for their own action. But men, our wives, will become more like us. This is why godly leadership is so important. And so she comes in. She lies to Peter, and Peter said to her, her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Peter says, you too? Hmm. And behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men, they always made the young men do, these were like the, the interns. The interns came in and they came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. A few more principles on greed. Greed spreads. You see that um, in children who are raised in homes where their parents are greedy and they want all these things and they say this is what this is how we do life and they go at life the same way you see that in homes where children are raised and they're taught the value of money they're taught right and wrong when it comes to money and that's what they do with their money you see it in proverbs 1 my son do not walk and with them and hold back your foot from their paths for their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Let Sheol, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. And here's the key, young buck. We shall find all the precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us. We'll all have one for, one purse. There's this unity. There's this perversion of it around greed. Greed spreads. It's contagious. And finally, greed is a sin. And I will uh, expand on this. And all sin is severe. Then Ananias died, and there was 
a great fear that came upon him. And Sapphira died, and a great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. Now, I want to give you the principles of both these paragraphs so we don't, you're wondering, well, I didn't give all that I had promised in my heart to do. Is this the you lie, you die text? Number one principle of all, this whole passage, this is descriptive in nature and not prescriptive. Okay? Much of the book of Acts is descriptive. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that during this series. It is not prescriptive. It takes well-reasoned, well-thought-out, discerning Bible study to know what we hold on to and what we see is what happened. Craig Blomberg, in his book, From Pentecost to Patmos, an introduction to Acts and through Revelation, says it like this. Unlike the epistles, the book of Acts gives few formal commands. Even though the four Gospels, with their emphasis on Jesus' ethical instruction, have more explicitly didactic material in Acts. That means there's a lot of teaching material in the Gospels. Most of the contents simply present various vignettes involving the characters Luke chooses to highlight. Subsequent readers frequently find themselves asking, what is normative? What is a positive example to emulate or a negative one to avoid? Or are certain events included for reasons, perhaps just because they happened and remained important for explaining developments in the fledgling church? Key sentence. One fundamental hermeneutical axiom is to answer these questions is to distinguish the consistent patterns of behavior from multiple contexts within books and the rest of the New Testament and patterns that vary from one context to the next. I don't see in the rest of the New Testament, every time you lie, you die. So I'm not going to preach from the pulpit, be warned, if you lie, you die. That's not what the Bible is trying to say here. And wacky pastors have gone crazy with this passage. We, on the one end, we go, we got to all live together and wear white sheets and let's just sell everything and live some weird, perverted communal life. That's not what it's saying. On the other end, you get the hell's fire and damnation pastor that comes over here and makes this caricature uh, out of this passage. The principle right here is simple. God takes sin seriously. That is the prescription of that descriptive passage. God takes sin seriously. And it seems in our lives, in the culture we live in, and it's not really just our culture. Let's be fair to the world because this Bible was written to be preached across the nations. It seems that across the globe, sex and money are very powerful. Today, we don't deal with sex, but we deal with money, and it's very powerful. That's why 25% of Jesus' teachings in the parables were on money. It's powerful. And so this text is descriptive of what happened. It's not necessarily prescriptive. It's a descriptive text. Number two, this is beautiful to see Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your all. This is wonderful to see that we have a visible, unified, imperfect church. You, You need to see in the text, we need to see in the text, that this was an imperfect church. Because what do we do? Oh, I just want to go back to the Acts church. Really? Do you want to go back to that? I just, you know, it just be the Acts 2 church. Well, how about the Acts 5 church? But it shows you it's an imperfect church. It was imperfect in its infancy. It's imperfect now, but we serve and love a perfect Savior. And it's visible. You can see they were gathered together. They were doing things as a church. It's visible. There is no universal church without the local church. And it's unified. It's unified philosophically. They were of one heart and soul. It's theological. They were about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is practical. They were taking care of one another. And it's hierarchical. 
that they, they actually trusted their elders to distribute to those who had need. It's imperfect. And this shouldn't deter any unbeliever to say, oh my, I can't believe that happened. I don't want to follow Jesus. It should show that this is about our Savior. And our Savior died for our sins because we are in the presence of a holy God. Which leads me to my next principle of the entire passage is the fear of God and the seriousness of sin. Three and four are kind of tied together. People often, when they read this passage, get spooked. Is, is, did, did God do that? Here's what commentators do. They try to do God a favor and say, well, it really wasn't God who did that. It was Peter, poor Peter, always putting his foot in his mouth. He actually cursed them. No, no, no. That's, that's not what it says. You have not lied to men, but to God. And he died because he lied to God. You've tested the spirit of the Lord. And the whole great fear came upon the whole church. It was not because of Peter's curse. It was because of God's judgment. Daryl Bach says in some, this is a difficult passage. Amen. Thank you, Daryl, for bringing that up. Because the judgment against Ananias and Sapphira is instantaneous and direct. Again, you don't preach, you lie, you die. That's, that's not what the text is saying. This judgment indicates, however, how serious sin is to God and how gracious God is in often deferring his judgment. Amen? Most sin is not treated so harshly. But that, here's the key essence of why this passage is here. Why would Luke include this in Acts at this time? Dr. Bach says this. Most sin is not treated harshly, but at this early stage, such a divine act serves to remind the community of its call to holiness and its loyalty to God. God sees and knows all. Ananias and Sapphira didn't think they would see, but God saw. The resulting fear that the judgment creates is exactly what the passage seeks to engender. Here's the idea of the fear of the Lord. Respect for God and righteousness, as well as a recognition that sin is destructive and dangerous. I think that is the greatest, most concise idea. What does it mean to understand the fear of God? Respect for God and for the righteousness, as well as recognition that sin is destructive and dangerous. And there's honesty in the report as well. This church is not a place of perfect people. The sequence of sin is never isolated. This is huge. The desire for praise, hey, look how much we gave the church, perhaps is a desire to hang on to the possessions, led to the lying. Manipulating their reputation was more important than allegiance to God and God's reputation. Abuse of possessions can undergird a manipulated reputation. Lying led to deceit and an offense against God. Over and over, it's talking about God. Sin almost never comes in a single package. It begets more sin. And this passage has another lesson. Sin will be dealt with. Which leads me to, I, I believe it's my fifth one. So you have the seriousness of sin, but then you have the necessity of, of discipline. You have the necessity of discipline. Peter couldn't allow this to happen. Now, we don't pray for and or seek physical deaths anymore, but nonetheless, we must maintain the purity of the church, not only doctrinally, but practically. We're to hold each other accountable. And the first goes with me. Amen? I'll put myself up there first. And after me, all of you especially those of you who have joined in covenant membership, we have a responsibility to hold each other accountable to the purity of our walks with Jesus and the purity of this church as a whole. And so we must discipline. We must discipline. And so the passage Bach ends is a path to honesty and integrity. I like that. He ends with hope. And, it, and I'll end with this because it's a topic. It's about how they gave. One gave generously. 
Barnabas gave with generosity. One gave with greed. Ananias and Sapphira were greedy. And so my sixth idea is this. We must give. And we must give financially. And so I have, and I hope you have it sitting next to you, um, a handout. It's in your worship guide. I want to go over that with you. And while you get it, just listen to some of these statistics when it comes to the issue of money. In 2008, Christian Stewardship and Tithing Report. In its 2008 report, 33.4% of estimated total giving, that's of Christians, uh, we had 103 billion went to the houses of worship and denominational organizations. 85% of all church activity and funds is directed towards uh, internal operations of the congregation. Here's what Christianity Today says. Americans who earn less than 10,000 gave 2.3% of their income. Those who earn 70,000 or more, catch this, those who earn 70,000 or more gave only 1.2%. While actual percentages are slightly higher for Christians who regularly attend church, the pattern is similar. Households of committed Christians making less than 12500 per year gave 7% of their incomes, a figure no other income bracket beats until it becomes above $90,000, which gave only 8.8%. One has been quoted that said this, if members of historically Christian churches in the United States had raised their giving to the Old, Testament, the Old Testament's minimum, the Old Testament went further than 10%. It was like 23%. So if you did the standard minimum giving in back in 2000, there would be billions of dollars to aid in the Christian mission work. If we gave just 10%, no more or no less, we would have billions to aid in the Christian mission work. Now, with all that said, let me walk you through God's money manager, the heart, habits, and hope. It's all about stewardship. It, when I say God's money manage, man, manager, it's about stewardship. God owns everything. I am the owner of nothing. Legally, I own some things and must pay down my debts. But the idea, the grand idea is that God is the owner of everything. I am his money manager. That is, we should put stewardship over ownership. It begins with our heart. Money is a heart issue, an eye issue, and a hand issue. Read Matthew 6. Money is not the root of all sorts of evil. The love of money is. We must view money as a resource God has given us to love him and with all our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It is okay to be rich, i.e. Boaz. It is okay to be poor, just make sure wherever God has assigned you, right? God is the one who has assigned us whether we're rich or poor, Acts 17, 26. You are righteous and not unrighteous. Number five, our standard of giving is not a dollar amount or a percentage of our budget. It is the Lord. Here is a great question. People say, sometimes say, why do I have to give 10% or X percent. Let's just use 10 because that's what's commonly talked about when we talk about money. That's not the question. Here's the question. Why should you get to keep 90%? It's not yours. Why should you get to keep 90%? It's a matter, again, when I was, it's a matter of perspective. When I was ministering to singles for seven years, how close can we get and not get into the fire? That's not the question. It's how much can you glorify God? Right? It just ta it takes, the, it takes all the pressure off. I'm not going to give you how close can you get. It doesn't matter. It's how, how much can you glorify God? And when it comes to money, it's not yours anyway. How much do you need to keep? And that leads to our habits. I'll just breeze through these. Number one, earn money honestly. There's scriptures there to back up all this. Budget money for clarity. It's a guide to reality. If you don't have your budget on a piece of paper somewhere, even a, 
I, you may have that still trap of a mind. I don't know how you do it. I, I think if you budget, and literally I've seen lives change when I said, what are your revenues and what are your expenses? I've shared this illustration before, but there's a lot of new people here who haven't heard it. If you've heard it before, just laugh like you used to. I was ministering to a young guy, a young single, sweet guy. He was a chef. He was a chef. That means he knows how to cook. I'm not a chef. I'm really good at cereal. I'm really good at peanut butter sandwiches. That's about it. This guy's a trained chef. I said, he goes, man, I'm struggling with my finances. If you're free, if you're willing, if you want to come in and let the pastor see your stuff, we can work through it. He came in with all his receipts. He's like, yeah, here's what I'm spending per day. 30 bucks a day. Do that math. 30 times 30, that's a lot. 30 bucks a day, go to the Sonic in the morning, get his breakfast deal and big old cherry limeade, something for lunch. He was single, so he didn't cook, so he could go buy some. 30 bucks a day. I said, really? <laughs> I feed a family. What were you, four at that time? I feed a family of four on less than that. And I said, brother, this is, I looked right at him. I said, brother, you're a chef. Just go with my wife to the store and get her, but you can have steak, chicken, vegetables. You can do a lot. And I'll, I'll even, I'll put $300 right back in your budget tomorrow. <laughs> budget for clarity. And then you give money systematically, secretly, joyfully and bountifully. By the way, that 2 Corinthians passage shows you don't have to be rich to give. The poor were begging to give for the abundance of joy that was in their heart. Give proportionately to what you make and sacrificially. And in my opinion, I think you should give with priority to the church first, then other gospel-centered organizations, and then other God-honoring causes. I really believe if we would give to the local church and we trusted our elders, if all churches would do that, there would be no, we would be closer to this Acts 4.34 idea. Save money purposefully. You don't just store it up like the guy did in Luke 20, Luke 12. Ah, I'm making so much money. What shall I do? I'll just tear down these barns and build bigger barns because I just need to save because my, my idol is security. Save money purposely. Live simply. How do you live simply? Earn money, give money, save money, and yes, spend money. Invest money wisely, spend money thoughtlessly, and key word here, guiltlessly. Guiltlessly. If you're doing all these other things first, go buy something. You heard it here. We're, we, My wife and I know our budget. We organize our budget. We take care of good things. And if she wants to go get a winter dress because it's October and it's starting to get chilly, go for it, right? We're not going up to Vail. We're going to Target. But that's okay. And she's not going to worry about it. It's going to break. Just go and enjoy it. She, I, By the God's grace, I've been given Mrs. Frugal. And I'm like, go spend, just take money, spend it. And that's so good, but maybe there's some of you need to be reined in a little bit, but spend it guiltlessly. And here's a big one. Have you ever thought about this? Submit your budget to accountability that Nehemiah gave his budget for people to see. And if you read 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 5, it was a community commitment. And that leads to the final thing, the hope of God's money manager God has provide, promised to provide all our needs, not our wants, our needs. He will take care of us. And you and I can join together for endless possibilities. How can we do this? Why do we do this? Ultimately, because think about it like this, and I end with this. Before God ever asked you to give anything, he, in his generosity, gave everything. For God so loved the world that he gave. There's the generosity. 
He gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus Christ, who in the, was equal with God, wasn't greedy. He didn't see equality with God, something to be grasped. I can't do this. This is too good up here. He emptied himself, came in the form of a man, in the form of a servant, and died on the cross, died even death on a cross, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ, and it goes right back to the glory of God our Father. You want a picture of generosity? You want a picture of sacrificial love? That is the gospel. Father, I pray that we would be good stewards of what you've given us. Help us to be like Barnabas, encouraging with our words, extravagant in our giving. God, I pray for those in here who may be in debt. I pray that they don't fall into the, the legalistic trap of having to give so much of their money. I pray that you would get them and help them get out of debt so they would get out of the bondage of money into the blessings of ministry. I pray for all of us that we would not seek certain percentages to tick off in our to-do list, but we would seek a heart perspective. And I pray for anyone in here who's struggling in this, that they would give a dollar with joy than a hundred dollars with a scowl as they write their check. Father, I pray that you would work on our hearts. You would work on our habits and we would be instilled with hope. We see this passage in Acts 5, and we thank you that you didn't let the early church get away with sin. You don't let us get away with sin. We revere you, we respect you, because we see that sin is destructive and dangerous. I pray for myself, and I pray for my wife, that we would model the way. Pray for the elders to lead the way. Pray for those who are in leadership here to lead the way and that all of us would join together, that we would be generous and that we would be pure. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.